the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to The Big Silence Podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go. Mental health is my wealth. The stress up on the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seeking ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence. The big silence. Hello, it's your big silence host and friend, Karina Don here. So excited you are back. I am sitting here in Austin, Texas, about to take off to Palm Springs, California, where I'll be for a couple weeks before I come back here to Austin, Texas to round out Mental Health Awareness Month, which is May. If you've been following along to the hashtag Calm Heart Quiet Mind, we've had this challenge going on all month where community and friends share um, what they do to have a calm heart and quiet mind and just a little tips for each other. So make sure you follow that hashtag and share with us. We'll be reposting as well. And to round out Mental Health Awareness Month, I am so excited because I am doing with my friends an event at the flagship store for Kendra Scott. All right, girls and boys. (laughs) Actually, Kendra Scott has a new men's line as well. So men and women, everybody. Come join me on May 28th. It's Memorial Day weekend. So if you live in Austin or you're in town in Austin on South Congress, the Kendra Scott flagship store, it's the cutest store. And they actually just now, they have a hat making and a boot, a boot barn. So definitely come hang out. Go to thebigsilence.com for more info or the Big Silence or my personal Instagram. It's going to be really fun. We're doing a private event at 10 a.m. to 11. Come do yoga with me on Sunday morning, a little meditation. There's a ticket and um, you get a signed copy of my memoir and we get to hang out. And then from 11 to 2, it's sip and shop. Hang out. I'll be there the whole time. And 20% of proceeds go to the Big Silence Foundation and our programming from Therapy for All and upcoming youth programs. So thankful and grateful for Kendra Scott and her team for putting this on with me. Every donation helps for the big silence. Today's guest is Trey Hardy and had the honor of him coming to the studio in real life, which is always nice. Trey is a two-time world champion and two-time Olympian, silver medal in 2012 and decathlon 
He was ranked number one decathlete four times throughout his career. And he attended UT here in Austin. And he was a seven-time All-American and set the collegiate record in decathlon. Trey retired in 2017. This is a discussion about his journey from world's greatest athlete to a man without a purpose. And he discusses how it's been a struggle to redefine his purpose. Yeah, so I met Trey at the gym. You know, that's where I meet a lot of people. The gym, it's a great place to be social and meet people that are like-minded. At the gym here in Austin called Collective. I'm so happy to have him here and sit down and talk about lots of stuff. This is a good one. I mean, they all are, right? But enjoy this and... Of course, always share uh, with anyone who you think needs to hear it. All right. Love you. See you soon. Welcome to the pod, Trey Hardy. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm very, very excited to be here and just thankful that you reached out and just as I was driving up today, just had those like kind of like the gratefulness trail where mm-hmm. you start looking at all the things that fall into place and the path that you walked and all that stuff and led, led me here today. Just so super, super grateful. Yeah. And we've briefly met at the gym collective and I meet a lot of people at the gym. <laughs> same, same. And it was in a season where I'm new to the gym. So mm-hmm. I'm meeting all of the important people and all the people that come over and every like Jeremy's pulling people's arms. You got to meet this. You got to meet this. And it was, yeah, I think you, I think we're we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But then, so I'd met you at the gym and I was like, oh, okay, because Jeremy, we were talking about the youth programming we are planning for, for the big silence. And he's like, you got to meet Trey. We briefly met. I don't know if you remember. It was like, you know, Jeremy pulls people in every direction. I was at the North location. And then I started following you and I saw your podcast on life beyond the game. Hmm. And I was like, wow, you see someone in the gym and you don't really know what's going on behind that smiling face it's jay hills is like oh yeah trey olympic athlete this that you gotta meet him and then i saw that and i listened to the, it's a two-hour podcast and i was like whoa like i want to talk to you because i think it's the journey from you know being an athlete an olympic athlete and the mindset that journey is in your mind from youth your dreams your accomplishments, and then rediscovering yourself now. I mean, thanks for powering through that that <laughs> podcast. It's uh, it's long, but the the rediscovering part is really it's almost interesting to hear you say it that way because that I guess that is really what it was. But it feels like I'm on a journey, like I'm on a passage. Yeah, right. I'm on the ship, and we're going somewhere, and I've just gotten to the point where. I'm okay with not knowing where we're going. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to make sure the ship's in ship shape. But I, I and I want to start years and years back. But yeah, I understand that too because I've had this journey. And we were sitting in my living room talking earlier, and like you know, my past and my triathlon days, and then founding Tone It Up, and then what is the future? You know, there's always these transitions. But let's go back to Trey growing up. What was your dream as a little boy? Number one dream, it was probably to play basketball at the University of Florida. That was that was it. Like I grew up going to all those those camps, like the father-son camps and the team camps and stuff. That was what I wanted to do. 
and then got to a certain age where I'm like, okay, I'm probably not going to get there. It would be really cool to just to play small school, you know, NAIA D3 basketball at the, at the next level, get a good education, go into like be an engineer, an architect, but also get to play basketball as long as I could. That was it. It didn't go farther than that. Okay. But then you became like one of the best athletes in the world. And in the Olympics and that journey, like how does one go from that and how, what was that feeling? And I also want to know what your parents thought because I've had some pretty wild dreams and I've accomplished them and your parents are like, what are you doing? Yeah. I, like I never had that like poster on the wall, I'm going to do this kind of thing. I, I, I just went from like sport to sport to sport to sport to sport and by my, the last half of my junior year of of high school, all the other sports were gone. I think I played soccer that year too, but everything was kind of gone. And this thing that had gone from, uh, I tried it for two weeks, my freshman year, talking about pole vaulting. I just saw somebody doing it. I was like, I want to do that. So I did it for two weeks. The next season I did it for two months. And then by my junior year, everything had kind of fallen by the wayside. So I had this nice four month thing into it. And I started going to pole vault camps. I drove to Jonesboro, Arkansas to go to Earl Bell's pole vault camp. It was kind of one of two or three in the country that were like, if you're serious about pole vaulting, you go there. Learned a lot about the pole vault and came home and had seen the the current American record holder practicing and was like, that is beyond the coolest thing that you can do, I, I think, in sports. It's just one of the wildest, most unique things. And I remember telling my mom, I'm going to be a professional pole vaulter someday. And my mom's super supportive, but also very pragmatic. She's like, okay, you just need to make sure you make good grades and get a good education and okay. You know, like, it's like, sure, Trey, sure. And I really have, I've never had the conversation with her now. Like, what were you really thinking when I said that? I'm sure, I mean, she believed in me, believed I was going to do something special with my life. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I didn't even know if you could be a professional pole vaulter. You know, yeah. like I didn't know what that looked like, what that meant. Um, I knew that they did it in the Olympics, but I was I wasn't like an Olympic junkie. I hadn't really fallen in love with track and field at that point. And then just as track and field and pole vaulting found me when I got to uh, Mississippi State to what I thought was just to pole vault, uh, they told me I was going to try the decathlon. Like we're going to you're going to train for it. You already know how to do the hardest event. You're tall. You're fast. Let's see what this looks like. And I, I hated it. I trained for it for like four or five months. Did not like it. It's Can, so hard. Back to pole vaulting. So is it, you have to be tall for that? Is that like, what is the, because I'm 5'10", but I remember doing that in high school. And I was like, I'm just awkward and not, I can't. <laughs> so yeah. what do you have, what, yeah. what is it that you need? You need to have a screw loose, kind of, first of all, <laughs> yeah. to like, run full speed and put your trust in your life in the hands of this little fiberglass thing, mm-hmm. right? So you need to have that and you need to be just dumb enough, like just below <laughs> the line to so you're not over analytical. So those uh-huh. are the first two things. So okay. both things are mental. That's okay. what you got to have. Just trust. Yeah. yeah. And then levers help. It, like in anything, long levers help. You would have been a good pole vaulter. One of the, the, one of the best pole vaulters in, in world history. I think she's 5'10", 5'11". Yeah. And Jen Schur. She was amazing, Olympic champion, really, really tall and really fast. Yeah. And everything else is just a skill. You can learn the technique. You can learn all that stuff. It's like big wave surfing. If for one moment you doubt what you're about to go do. Then you're fucked. 
You've already lost. Yeah. 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 So decathlon. All the things. Yeah. Let's roll. We can roll yep. through it. So yep. it's 10 events, five events on day one, five events on day two. Uh, the 100 long jump, shot put, high jump, 400. Then you get a little bit of sleep. You come back. You do the 110 hurdles, the discus, the pole vault, the javelin, and then the 1500. So like 100 meters short of like a mile on the track. But how do you train for 10 things? Very painfully. That's how you do it. I was fortunate that I was in a, a coaching system that played the long game. It mm -hmm. wasn't like, Trey, you don't know how to throw. We're going to throw every day. Or Trey, we're learning how to jump. We're going to high jump every day. They played the long game. Like, mm -hmm. we want you to be your best when you're a senior and beyond kind of thing. And so you do a little bit of each thing each week. And you carve in. A, there's some technical things that you can do twice. But it was just this lesson in, in patience and frustration and how to compartmentalize failures, how to, yeah, really just delay gratification because it it's not instant. And you only get to do one, two, or three, maybe at the max decathlons a year because that's all your body can take. So mm -hmm. similar to, I would think, training for a triathlon where mm -hmm. you're just putting in work, tons and tons of work, and you can only afford it like a full iron. You can only do one or two of those a year. Like yeah. You have to have this really, really long buildup and you get that old old woman strength and old man strength where you string together like years and years and years of high quality work to get to those next levels. It's not like flash in the pan, you know, yeah. brilliance. Yeah. You got to put in time. Yeah. Okay. So take us back. So you start training for decathlon. Yeah. I'm at, I'm at Mississippi State. I'm hating every workout. I. Why are you doing it then if you hate it? I saw, and I was on a book scholarship, so it wasn't like I'm yeah. like the guy, but I saw that contract as a job. I remember having those conversations with my parents, like, listen, when you sign this, you are committing to work for this institution for four years, and mm -hmm. you're going to hold up your end of the bargain. And I was ultra competitive and just saw it as this, all right, I'm going to do this and get it out of the way so that I can just be a pole vaulter. Hope like fingers crossed that I'm really bad at this so I can go back to just pole vaulting. And it was here in Austin, Texas at the Texas Relays. I did my very first one and loved it. Like loved it, loved it, loved it. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. But when you cross the finish line after the 1500, after that 10th event, you've just been really going through physical and mental challenges for two days with this group of men who've all been doing what you've been doing as well. And there's some weird brotherhood and camaraderie that happens throughout the whole thing. And especially at the very end, mm -hmm. you cross this line and there's no blood in your brain. Your blood is like battery acid and you, I, it's euphoria. It's just yeah. this feeling that's really, really hard to describe. And I felt good. And then after that, everyone's patting me on the back mm -hmm. saying, wow, what a great score. Yeah. You scored, you know, really high. I, like, I didn't know if that was good or not. And yeah. I had just done okay, you know. And so it becomes addicting where you're like, okay, the next time out, I'm going to do this and I'll do this and I can do this. But the most important thing after the first one was just, I knew what the training was for at that point. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is why we do this. This is why it's so hard, you know? Yeah. I would say back in my triathlon days when I was coming out of my deep depression and like just set a goal to cross the finish line. And I know that feeling the first time you cross the finish line crying tears of joy like i just did something awesome yeah. like i challenged myself and now i know that i can do something 
more, 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 greater, greater, greater. And I can accomplish anything now. So did you feel like that was, you were just like, I can do this. Well, and to your point right there too, there's something about sports that's a little bit different than everything else too, because Mm -hmm. of the exposure. Mm -hmm. You are out there in in the world on a stage, like an open mic night. Like Mm -hmm. I've challenged myself to go to an open mic night for the last like six years. I still haven't don't have the guts to do it. Yeah. That exposure and presenting yourself. Everyone knows you're trying to win. Everyone's trying to win, mm-hmm. you know, and there's that that aspect of it that makes it a little bit more gratifying than like some of the stuff that's done in the darkness that that are just a lot of self-love, but mm-hmm. there's this interesting aspect of it of being like for us, you know, in spandex and doing it too, you know. So, you're winning and you keep going. And what's that journey like? You don't get to win at first. I mean, it's an it's an old man's event, but I found I success. say winning as in like you're winning in life. On, you're like on the path. You're, I'm on the podium. Yeah. I'm looking good. Like I was I was a scrawny kid mm-hmm. growing up. I wasn't big. I wasn't tall. When I signed my my scholarship, I think I was probably like six two and like 150 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, I'm like. Six four, buck eighty five, and a year after that, I'm six five two ten. So mm-hmm. it would like training. My body responds really well. I can put on muscle, and so look good, feel good, play good. And when you're that early learning a skill, the curve is super steep. I mean, you you get really good at something really really quickly. But it didn't really ever slow down for me till maybe my junior season. And I won a national title. I, I transferred to Texas, you know, won an NCAA title. Um, my senior year, I set the collegiate record. Sorry, I think I set two of them. Set two collegiate records. And it was just this, like, it, I was just on the ride. I wasn't questioning anything. I wasn't even like, okay, what am I doing that's working? What am I doing that's not working? There was no, none of that. It was just full speed ahead. If you're in my wake, sorry, here we go. Yeah. And I was just taking it as far as I could. And that, that lent itself. I got a, a contract to run for Nike. There was only two other decathletes in, in America that had contracts. And I was like, okay, here we go. Now it's time to, to cross this next threshold. And somewhere in there, it just transitioned from, I want to get a good education and take this as far as I can to, I want to make an Olympic team. And how does that happen then? I don't know this process. How do you go and make an Olympic team? gotta want it here you gotta want it here no it is the hardest thing in sports i believe we have a great track team we have a really great developmental system here in the united states and it's the hardest team to make i think that was actually probably i think that was the theme in 2008 when i made my first team it was like the hardest team to make what is the percentage of athletes trying to make the olympic team that actually make it do you know that that's a good question (laughs) you might not know that answer but i'm just curious so if you think about just on like a men's collegiate team, there's 55, 55 of them. And there's mm-hmm. a few hundred collegiate men's teams. So if you do that math and then you say, all right, that's just college, then there's probably triple that outside of college that are also trying. It's just the top 1% of 1% that make it there. And it's the top three performers on that day. So you've got the best in the country, they only take 24 of them into the meet and they say, all right, at the end of this meet, we're taking the top three and top three make an Olympic team. And that, that, yeah, I'd been hurt a lot the year before, had a surgery, just 
couldn't get everything aligned and three months leading in was like the best three months of training I'd ever had in my life. Set a personal best, got second at the Olympic trials and had and did it, like made the Olympic team. And it was like this, again, we're still on the train. The train's still moving up. I'm still getting better. It was up from here. That was like kind of the mentality. Did you make friends in that process or were you guys competitive against each other? You're competitive, but in our event, it's really, it's different. There's no trash talk. There's no like, yeah. animosity because like i said my last decathlon i did was the exact same feeling as the first one i ever did yeah. there's like a brotherhood and a camaraderie it's the only thing so in in the olympics or world championships you finish the 1500 every single decathlete runs a victory lap yeah. every single one you always do it together there's no just just the medalists or anything everybody runs it together and so you're you're out there suffering and struggling and failing and succeeding but the vibes are always really good because that rising tide floats all the boats. I mean, that must be this euphoric feeling to be able to then make the Olympic team where you did two Olympics. I made two teams. Yep. Tried out for three. Oh, sorry. Tried out for four. I, I went to the 04 trials and yeah, just a little puppy dog just getting my wheels blown off. So your first Olympics was what year? 2008. 2008. And how, tell about that experience. Went in with the third best score in the world. Again, we're going up. Haven't haven't tried to figure out what works and what doesn't work. I've always been like that. That's Trey Hardy. That's the guy. I was the best in college. I was this up and coming professional. I had the you know top score in the world, and got to the pole vault, my bread and butter, at the Olympic Games in front of I don't know. I'm telling myself it's like tens of millions worldwide that are watching this thing go down, and I'm in medal position. And one of my best events to come, I just started throwing the javelin really far. And I was in really good shape for the 1500. It was like, we got a medal in our sight. Let's go get the medal. And the next thing I know, I kind of came to, like you see in the movies where like the camera just like zooms in on their face. And it's like, it was at that point that I knew I had messed up, you know, and I had no hide it. I had missed my opening height, all three attempts, knocked the bar down. And it was like this crash down to earth, started crying. And that whole last, you know, three or four years, it kind of flashed before my eyes. And I started thinking about the people that had sacrificed for me to be there, my parents who had flown all the way there, my coaches who had given up their time with their families to help me. So everything rushes in all at once. It's emotion like you're at the top and then you're, you, you mess up. I mean, as an athlete, an Olympian, you're competitive with yourself too, I would assume. And you have these certain goals and visions and things that you need to do. And then so all in a moment, you're feeling everything through your body. But does everyone, anyone as an athlete talk to you about how to work through those moments? Or are you just there tears down like, I messed up and I let everyone down? In your head, you're saying that. Yeah, and you're you're a perfectionist to a fault, you know, with yourself. I was my own, my worst critic. I was hard on myself. The way that I was, like, the coaches that were hard on me and and like not negative, but like perfectionists in by nature were the best coaches for me. Yeah, there's just all that kind of falls down on you, just crashes on you in that moment. And leading up to that, you know, like I've said, I'm not 
looking at what's working and what's not working. I'm just we're, everything's moving up. We're not gonna. I'm not gonna mess with anything, or try to reach out and get some new vantage points or anything like that because my vantage point, my stuff's working. And that was the first time it wasn't. It didn't work. It wasn't working. I was mentally unprepared. I was I was taken back and smashed by that moment. Just mentally, physically, best shape of my life. And so you stand up and you walk off. What are you thinking? And are people coming to you? Or is anyone there for you, comforting you? Or are you just with yourself in your own head? Uh, you're with yourself for a little bit. Everyone kind of knows not to come up and, hey, it's all right, man. Like, it, it's the Olympics, man. It's not all right, you know? Like, they, everybody that's, that you're competing with kind of understands that. And I just remember trying to find my coach in the stands. I knew where, he had been in the same spot the whole time, and I, he wasn't there. And I'm like, okay. I, I think I've just seriously, again, this like shame just spiraling down of all of the things that I had just let slip through my fingertips at that moment. And I load up my stuff, and I walk under the stadium, and I just want to get out of there. Like, I, I just want to, you know, go from third place to 28th place. I'm out, I'm out of here. Kind of told myself that my body wasn't feeling well and just didn't, didn't want to have anything to do with any of that stuff anymore. And my parents were there. And I remember finding them and just apologizing. Saying, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. You know, I just, I don't know what happened. Crying. I don't remember talking to my coach, but I know he was there. Uh, and this is a super brief encounter on the, like the mezzanine of the actual stadium, like with the with the fans. Like I'm not, it's not some special place or locker room or anything. And then I remember going up and watching. Um, I think it was the javelin as the next event. My parents had run into Brian Clay, who was the eventual eventual Olympic champion that in that meet. Um, run into his family, who had all flown in from Hawaii and California, and. They got to, like, they had a box. Like, they had, like, a private box. And I watched Brian win from his family's, like, private box. And that was really cool and really powerful and I think very important for me to see and just experience and be a part of. But it it was, like, I couldn't get home fast enough from that place. So you're at the Olympics. And this happens. And in your heart, you are feeling, I mean, you... You know, I always think, like, I've accomplished a lot in my life, too. But then when I have something that doesn't go the right way, I beat myself up. And then you have to be like, well, Karina, Trey, like, you made it here. Like, how do you talk yourself through that and then pick yourself back up through, quote, unquote, what you would call a failure? Whereas I would imagine a lot of people watching you would be like, wow, he's at the Olympics. He's a winner. I I wish there was this, like, oh. Here's how you do it. Like step, bullet point. And really, I mean, it circles back to that exposure and that like, it wasn't just that I, you know, failed, messed up, done that. I've I've done it thousands and thousands of times in practice and training and and meets leading up to that. But this was just a different level of bigger the stage, bigger the letdown. And in the the weeks after, kind of had that like come to Jesus meeting with my coaches and, and they challenged me to be more professional, both in the training side, take more ownership of, of the training that I was doing and be more 
prepared, be more well-rounded and take care of the mental side and the mental preparation of everything too. And it was kind of the ultimate challenge. And I, I met the challenge head on. It's like, okay, you can let what just happened define you. You can let what just happened be what the last memory people have of you, or you can learn from it, course correct, and show people that's not the real you. That was that was a version of you, but you can you can course correct and learn and figure out a way to continue to grow and move forward. There's another Olympic Games. There's a World Championships next year. There's opportunities down the road for you to not prove yourself, but just prove it to yourself that you can you can figure it out. You know? Well, you say it's not the real you, but why can't that be when you quote unquote have a failure? Why can't that be you? And then learning how to move through that and learning the failures make you stronger or you learn from it. But like that is, I, I'm just saying like you say that's not the real you, but you didn't do any, you gave it your best. And I think there's a lot of people in life who give it their best or don't even push as hard as you did. Like you did your best, but maybe in your perception, you didn't, you know, you didn't win that medal. But it's not that you didn't get the medal, that you didn't accomplish a lot or you're not a great person or you're you're not one to look up to because you have worked so hard. And even when you work so hard, it doesn't, you don't always have success for it. And that's okay. I totally get what you're saying. And I agree a hundred percent. Like the the outcomes and the things that happened are that is the real me but for that little window in time at that the world's grandest stage someone that's all someone saw of me like oh that's that guy that no hide it yeah like no that's so someone else's perception of you yeah Yeah. like no that's not me that little dose of external motivation to not have that be that that public perception it helps at times i mean ultimately internal motivation is the only thing that could (laughs) keep anybody doing a decathlon for very long, but it helped for a time just knowing that that wasn't a representation of the kind of person that I am. I was unprepared for that moment and I wasn't going to let that happen again. So next competition a year later, world championships, is that the next one? The next one, yeah, in Berlin. And there's all little stuff in between there, US championships and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, the next one is world championships in Berlin. So how did you show up for that? Won. What was different? Won that sucker. You did? Okay. Hell yeah. Yeah. Like what What medal? What place? A one. One. Oh, like one, one. Oh, like you were the fucking winner. I was the Number best. Number one. I was the best decathlete in the world. Yeah. Blew everybody out of the water. Had a great meet. Had a great seat. Just from the moment I made that determined stance, that look in the mirror after the Beijing Olympics, that I was going to professionalize everything. I was going to be more diligent. I was going to take more ownership. I was going to do all those things that I talked to myself about doing and talked to my coaches about doing. I did it. There's a, an interview I do after, the, after I win, you're in the mix zone, and they're like, what are you feeling? I was like, everything was worth it. And it was like this epiphany that like all that stuff worked. See, that's something to look up to for anyone listening. Like, oh, I, I feel like I was a failure here. And then, like, you just went and fucking won it and, like, top of the world after feeling internally that you probably weren't good enough or you didn't do it right. And then you you go and you win and you can pick yourself back up. So w- mentally, what was it – mentally and physically, actually, what did you do different to prepare for the world championships? The physical part's kind of, it's easy. 
So in track and field, you measure everything. Everything is like to the hundredth of a second, the centimeter, you measure everything. And so you just go back and you look at the timing and the way that we had periodized our training and load and, and intensities. You're tweaking a little bit, you're trimming a little fat and you're tweaking it a little bit so that the program that you're on times up well. That was really it. And another year under the belt, it's an old man's game. I'm stronger, fitter, faster, healthier, all that stuff. But on the mental side, it was preparation. It wasn't a lack of like confidence or anything like that, but it was the mental preparation for what could go right, what could go wrong, what was really two buckets, what's within your control and what's out of your control. You know, the within your control bucket is like the sleep that I get leading up to it, my clothes, my bag, how it's packed, my nutrition, all the stuff that I can control and, and take care of. I tried to do as much of that as I could bring my own, you know, supplements and protein and hydration packets, all the stuff that I could control, leave it in that bucket. And then if it's in the can't control bucket, I would run through this checklist for like the month leading up to a big competition. I would just nightly running through a checklist of, okay, how do I handle it? If, how do I handle it? If there's a German guy there blocking the door and I've got to go to the bathroom or I've got to do this and all like literally anything I could think of, I would just run through that scenario. What if it's raining? What if it's windy? What if my shoe breaks? What if I false start? What if this, this, it's down to my third attempt. What if it's like all the things that could possibly go wrong and not in like a, like nervous Nelly, like neurotic, like, oh no, but business, like here's what could happen. And so by the time it came to the, the day, I'd already been there, done that. I've already rehearsed exactly how this is going to go, good or bad. It helped with putting everything in your back pocket. You know, I gave myself, I always gave myself five minutes to process a good event or a bad event, whatever the outcome. Five minutes to be like, man, yes. Why'd that go right? Man, that was really cool. High-fiving people, doing whatever it is. Or if it was really bad. That was like admitting to yourself that was bad, like and not like, like oh, it's okay. It'll be fine. It's like, no, that was bad. Here's how we're going to get out of it and, and processing it. I'm just curious, like, what was your plan if the big German guy was blocking the bathroom? Just to pee right on his shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I got to go. I got to get out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, darf ich auf die Toilette gehen. That, that was my plan. May I please go to the bathroom? That you just run through all that stuff so that when you're in it, you're, it, I've done this. I've done this a million times already. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's already. I'm, well, yeah, a lot of athletes actually, they visualize what is going to happen. So you visualize the things that could go wrong. And then I imagine you visualize the thing, how you in your head want the, want it to run out or like how to. Like the performance. Yeah, the performance yeah. part. Yeah. yeah. I'd done that somewhat but not with intention yeah. not structured not here are here is the time of day i'm going to do this mental practice and i yeah mental performance like visualization is ubiquitous and super common just as a you know motor learning pathway to learn a new skill and just to, to harden that skill that visualization is awesome but the stuff in the buckets of what i could and couldn't control those are the, the things that kind of snuck up on me in Beijing. And so I was just flowing through this, this event. Like it felt like the second time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what happens after top of the world? What comes next? There's a year off so that there's nothing in the middle. 
um, and in the in the interim, I started dating my wife like a month and a half before that World Championships too. How did you guys meet? Didn't know she was going to be my wife. Uh, we met in 2004. We'd met five years previous at a like under 23 meet in Montreal or okay. just outside of Montreal. Okay. And it was just very like, hi, I'm, I'm Trey. Like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm Chelsea. And it was this like, there's mutual respect. She was really good at what she did. I don't think she knew who I was, but we just hit it off. And that was back when everybody was on Instant Mess AIM. And oh. I was on AOL mm-hmm. Instant Messenger and just stayed in contact. And then it turned out her college roommate went to Westlake. Mm-hmm. So she would come visit her, and whenever she was in town, I was just I was always around. I was just that guy that was, well, yeah. y'all, y'all going to the lake? I'll go to the lake, you know? Yeah. Just being around, because there was something about this this woman I just couldn't shake, you know? And we were dating other people. We were living our lives. She was at, in L.A. I was here, and it just wasn't, wasn't the right time. And yeah. in 2009, we finally both just said, you know what? We're not going to be able to live complete lives unless we give this a shot. Let's do it. And that's what we did. So... 2010, I chased her around um, the world, got to see a lot of Europe and and help her with her training and do that. But kind is, she, of stuff. is she an athlete? She was a pole vaulter. Oh, yeah, okay. sorry. Yeah, she yeah. was a pole vaulter. Way better athlete than I ever was or ever could hope to have been. She got athletic scholarships to play soccer at like Arizona, Arizona State, like big time soccer programs, but eventually just chose pole vaulting and was the best collegiate pole vaulter in history during her time there. She was like all packed. Back when it was Pac-12 century, like the hundred-year anniversary of the Pac-12, she's on, she's on the, she's all Pac-12 century team or whatever that is. I mean, she's phenomenal, yeah. like phenomenal athlete. So two days before I win gold in Berlin, she won silver at the World Championships in the pole vault. So she's a stud. Wow. Yeah. Look at you. So we just started dating. So that was just like yeah. this total stamp of like validation, like we were meant to be together. Yeah. Like we just had the best meets of our lives. This is going to go great. So the whole next year, I'm kind of chasing her around and doing that kind of stuff. There's no world championships. And the in 2011, the next world championships are in Daegu, South Korea. And I win that one too. Doing the same program, same things. Again, we trim the fat and tweak it a little bit, but all the same stuff. It wasn't as easy. It was a lot more of a lot more headwinds there. Literally and like figuratively got sick right before. But no one else had a really had a good meet, so I was able to kind of scrape through. And then um, on my last javelin throw there to try to secure the gold medal, so I could not have to run so hard for in the fifteen hundred, I completely shredded my elbow. So that's going on twelve years, yeah, twelve years ago. Still won, just had to run the fifteen hundred. So they taped it up, and I just kind of ran like a robot on some painkillers, and it was just wild. But as soon as I do the victory lap it kind of lands home that like my next chance at the olympics is like 10 and a half 10 months away and something's going on with my elbow i don't know what it is but it's like hitting home that pit in your stomach like i'm not gonna say it but i think this like you you know you know something's wrong yeah, yeah. and so I, I fly home get the images the guys they come into the room and they're telling me and i shit you not the next thing i know they've just said like yeah we can't even find your ucl you're gonna need tommy johns that's the last thing i remember before i woke up and i was on the floor i passed out that's how heavy that news was and i had no time it was like well 
did everything right, did everything I could do, and immediate feeling is like, well, there go there goes. Let's start thinking about 2016. You know, let's start thinking about the next one. I have surgery like four days after the images. Doctor says, hey, that was I couldn't have gone any better. You've got a really thick palmaris longus. It laced up really tight. It's just got to cook. You'll be more than 100% in two years. And hey, let us know how we can help. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so two years would have been what year? Because Olympics are coming in 2016. It would have been... I wouldn't have been ready to rock till like September of 2013. So totally skipping over the Olympic year in 12. Um, but again, it was this thing similar to 2008. It wasn't self-induced. It was just handed to me. Uh, and it was this look in the mirror moment where I got to challenge myself and kind of set some new ground rules that would define kind of the rest of my life in that I was going to do everything I could possibly do so that I could look back and know that and, and sleep happy no matter the outcome. I was going to do the work, all the unsexy stuff, all the little stuff where I'm like daily, all I'm doing is holding a two-pound dumbbell and trying to get my arms straight for three months so that it, I could wake up and it would be straight, just touching my fingers together because they had to transpose my nerve. So I couldn't, re I didn't have good function of any of my, my digits and stuff, all the rotations, all this stuff, because it, to throw a javelin, it's a pretty violent event. Very, very violent. On top of having to th throw a discus, on top of having to pole vault, on top of using that elbow is pretty critical. I'm right-handed. Yeah. And I just wanted to look back. I would accept whatever outcome came to me, but I was going to look back and be proud of the work that I did and the effort that I put in and the sacrifices that I made. Okay, so what's next? What happens then? Well, 2012, several several hundred thousand reps of that unsexy nonsense yeah. later, I, I snuck onto the Olympic team. I made it. I had a great nine events and a terrible javelin, but it was just enough to make the team. And so I'm in London. I got, I'm, on, I'm on London on house money. Yeah. Like, I think I had a beer the night before day one because I, I was just so proud of myself. I was like, I can't lose. Let's go have fun. My last Olympic experience was not fun. I, I took it too seriously and I wasn't even, I wasn't prepared mentally. And this one, I was so prepared. I had the playbook, like back-to-back -back world champions. Um, and I went out and had a fantastic first day, like set a couple hundred points, 300 points better than I had at the Olympic trials. So now we're like, whoa, let's just hold it together and just give ourselves a chance in the 1500 to maybe, maybe top five, maybe get a medal. Like someone's going to have to mess up for me to get a medal, but let's see. And I find myself clearing a bar in the pole vault, got enough points there, and we're, in, we're at the javelin, and I'm at the back of the runway with the most confidence in the world because I'd done all that work. It was, in, it was like it was the exact feeling I wanted to have, you know, that I told myself after surgery, this is, that was it, and it was just incredibly validating. How do you, because when you say, I'm just going to have fun, and I think – that's really important because one of my things and a lot of people in life, like we take everything so seriously, which it is with your career and everything that you're doing. It, it's serious. Like this is your life that you're building and your dreams. And But how do you shift from being so serious where you're not enjoying something and then you're like, I'm just going to have fun? Because I tasted what it's like when you don't have fun. And I hadn't truly ever had fun till after 2008. Even in college, like I thought I was having fun, but I really wasn't. It was it was too, like 
not too competitive, but I took myself too seriously. Like you can, you can do both. You can be competitive and be successful and still look through this aperture of gratefulness and joy and fun. You can do that. 2009, 2011, that's what all of that taught me. And so 2012, where I wasn't even supposed to make the Olympic team, like it was that times 10 where I'm showing up and I'm just like high-fiving dudes before the, the 100, like, hey, this is cool. We get to be here, right? And it's it's me like four years ago. I'm talking to him and he's just like, he's like, why is, what is Trey's deal? What, is he trying to get in my head? Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I'm at the back of the runway with a javelin with that mindset, like, not going to be here again. Yeah. You're going to have this opportunity again. And I know mm -hmm. what it's like to waste it. I know what it's like to be unprepared. I'm so prepared. Here we go. Let's go. And I end up throwing within like, this far of my all-time personal best in the javelin with a barely hanging on it's not even cooked into a ligament yet elbow and i lose my mind i you would have thought i won the olympics and set the world record in it or something <laughs> like that and it was again that same feeling as 09 this like gratifying like it, it was worth it like it worked i can't like the, it's amazing this mm -hmm. was like the the greatest moment aside from when i married my wife and my three kids, that this is right there. It's right there. Not the not the medal, not the winning, or not any of that stuff. But just that throw is just like the most impactful thing on my life, really. Yeah. And then I run a personal best in the fifteen hundred, get a silver medal, and that was just a cool. I mean, yeah. The, the older I get, the cooler it is. Yeah. Yeah. I compete for the next three. Uh, sorry, the next four years. Still, by all means, very successful. My life set. You know, life is set up, stacked together three years of, of winning big medals with a good contract, and I was kind of set. I still, you know, 2013 was probably the best shape I've ever been in in my life, and my hamstring cramp up in the high jump. Mm -hmm. And I know height in the high jump at the World Championships mm -hmm. in Moscow. And I, again, it was one of those moments where I, I didn't wake up and all of a sudden, oh, what happened? I was in the moment, I was super present, and I just could not stop cramping. I didn't know what was going on because it was still my same playbook same routine yeah. same ritual yeah. nothing had changed and then uh 2015 i make that u.s team again win another u.s championships and we're back in beijing and so i'm thinking what a cool what a cool opportunity i get to come back to this place that taught me so much but it was this still the bad taste in my mouth yeah and so i show up still in very very good shape and the sec, I think my second attempt in the long jump, my leg hits the board and it felt like a bolt of lightning shot oh, up my IT band, through my mm -hmm. sciatic, into my lower back. Lower back starts spasming like crazy. Can't calm it down. We're taking muscle relaxers and it, the, the next event's going and I'm trying to like squeeze out, like throw a shot, can't do it. The meat's over there. Yeah. There was some contractual stuff with Nike where we had this really awesome clause. My agent is amazing. Shout out Paul Doyle, um, where it's a ruthless, like sports marketing and track and field is ruthless. Mm -hmm. If at any point you don't meet a couple of things, I mean, you're you're reduced like 20%, 30%, 50% in some cases. So yeah. I went from like, I was making several hundred thousand dollars a year to now I'm making like in the low ones-ish. Mm -hmm. But I had done a couple of things in subsequent contract years that would automatically bump me back up to the previous year's salary. Well, Nike started paying out. 
and it was the wrong amount. And we're like, hey, this is not how it works. Like, mm-hmm. here's the clause. And they're like, I don't know. Like, it's like, hey, we'll go to, we're going to, we can go. We can, we can settle this. Yeah. And you don't, I was like, I don't want to spend money on a lawyer, but here's what you can do. Let's meet in the middle and put an extra year on my contract. So instead of 2016 being the last year, 2017 would be the last year. So it's another world championships opportunity. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, if I just do really well in Rio, like I, knew I would do really well, then this contract's going to be a million dollar contract because I'll get two years of this monster, fun, great salary and all the stuff. But dislocate my foot five months before the Olympic trials in 16. And so now I've got this like string of this three and a half years of these weird physical things that have taken the life out of my performance. Yeah. But I'm able to live with all of that because I'm still operating in that mentality of doing everything you could possibly do, like doing the work so that you, I can accept those outcomes. Yeah. No bitterness, no like, like why God? It yeah. was very much uh, like at peace with all of that stuff. Now in the moment it's frustrating, but I was very much like, all right, I'm just going to do everything that I can do. Again, the bucket I can control and the bucket that I can't. And didn't end up making the team for Rio, but it gave an opportunity for NBC to call and they mm-hmm. called and they said, Hey, you want to come out on the track tomorrow and call some of the events? And I'm like, ah, man, sorry. I'd already flown home to Austin. Not there. And he's like, no, we'll fly you back. Come on, come on out and give it a shot. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm still a little sad about what's going on. And yeah. my wife's like, you're getting on the plane and you're going <laughs> to go. I'm like, okay. So I have a great time doing it. I have this, I don't know if it's, I, I just feel comfortable on the camera talking about something that I love. And I'm about to fly back to Austin from Eugene from the Olympic trials. And they call again, like, Hey, you want to go to Rio? I'm like, yes, I do. So I got to go to Rio. I got to watch everything. It was bittersweet, but I still got to go to the Olympics and like still stay in contact. And I'm doing that to this day. Like every year I get to, I get to go to all the greatest meets in the world to watch the best athletes in the world. And it's been a really great like hook to stay in that close contact with the sport. But what is that, the journey of the athlete's mindset of competing and that high of competing and being the top? And then just that mindset of, okay, next steps. I heard you on the other Life Beyond the Game podcast about some of your transition and struggles with that and wondering like your purpose, I would suppose. Yeah. The, the level of, of success that I had, I had been given there, I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing. I got the levers. I'm wired. I, I loved competing. I loved to train for it. I was supposed to be doing the decathlon. That was it. And, and that feeling of, of being on purpose, successful or not. I've I'd had unsuccessful years. I'd had failures at high high levels it never once felt like oh, i'm tired of it. like i should be doing something else. i was on purpose but did you ever think when you were doing it like eventually your body would not be able to do it and yeah. did you ever think that far ahead and think of what i can control and what i can't control when that time comes and preparing for that or did you think you could just keep going oh no 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 that and that was when i first started that's a question. Hey, how long do you want to do this? And I was like, honestly, as long as someone will pay me to do it and I don't have to do a nine to five and I can still devote what this deserves, the time that it deserves. 
and then middle of my career, you know, it's that, okay, you're, you're 29. How long do you think you want to do this? I was like, I'm going to do it as long as my body lets me do it. I was at peace with that. And that extra year on top of the contract that we got, that 2017 year was going to be, I'm going to go to the U.S. championships and I'm going to wave and I'm going to leave my spikes on the track and do the whole romantic retirement thing because I was ready to retire. I was ready to move on. Uh, my wife and I just had our first child, Francesca Nora, and we were ready for that that chapter to begin. And every red cent I had ever made in, in track and field, I bought rental property here in Austin, which anybody doing that from like 2008 to even now is, you look like a genius. But I'd set up my life so that when I retired, I could figure out what the next plan was. I didn't have to jump into anything. We didn't have debt. Everything was in businesses, but we had renters and it was just a really good situation, like really, really good. And I had always felt that it's a really corny quote, but it really is the best quote. It's to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. And plan B for me was going to just be... I'm going to take time when I retire to figure out what that is and not do it now. Because if I do it now, it's going to feel like cheating on what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's going to feel like a diversion for what I love at that level, at the highest levels, whether you're in the NFL or the NBA or an Olympic runner, the differences between you making a team, not making a team, earning the next contract, not earning the next contract are this thin. And... I was scared that if I started some other venture, started doing something other than I was, you know, I'm a landlord, it was set. I had no fear. I had no, like, I got time. Like, I got plenty of time to figure this out. And the swan song that was going to be my U.S. championships thing ended up being my fourth U.S. title. I won the U.S. championships in 17. So I'm like, okay, well, now I got to hold, I got to train for the rest of the summer. We're going to go to London and that'll be it. And then it was my last one, my one and only ever crash out of the hurdles, and I crashed in the hurdles. It's just this wild, wild string of unfortunate events, like after 2012, just a weird thing. But it was very like, I had this weird, sad relief, like this very, very, the thing I was finally saying goodbye to, and I knew I was going to miss it. I didn't know how much, and it wasn't like missing of like, actually putting on my shoes and running fast, I was going to miss what I knew was my purpose, what I was supposed to be doing, you know? And honestly, the double-edged sword of not needing a job, it's, it's cool for a minute. It's cool just to, like, wake up and hang with your daughter and, like, do, do, do life again without anybody trying having a sacrifice for you. But you need direction. You need somewhere to go. And I didn't have any tools to, number one, like what I, what I talked about with Joe that you listened to, to process the death of what just happened and to process the, and, to, and to grieve and to treat it with the reverence that it deserved. I, I did the exact opposite. I buried who I was in that thing. Like I was Trey Hardy, U.S. champ, collegiate record holder, like, two-time Olympian, world champion. Like, that was, that is me. Yeah, but and that's I, an honor. And I ran yeah. from it. Yeah. Because now in the real, like, say, the real world outside of athletics, it felt like, not cheesy, 
or, or like cheating or like arrogant, but it just didn't feel fair. Or like I wanted to start something else with just my name and a blank slate and not cr use that as a crutch or a leg up or some t some kind of advantage. Talking about it now, it sounds so ridiculous like to, to do that, but I, I turned away from it. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to coach. I didn't want to do because that's kind of what you fall people fall into. Like, oh, you, you'd be a great coach. I don't want to do that. I got accepted into a really competitive MBA program here in Austin. Uh, it's called the Acton School of Business. And it was literally like Princeton's Princeton Review, most competitive MBA program, most competitive students. And I was like, that's my next challenge. I'm going to go get my master's. I'm going to go do this. It was a really intense 11-month program. It was something I didn't know if I would be successful at, but I powered through it and did it. And then I was kind of pushed out in the real world. Now I've got a bigger set of tools with still no direction, like still nothing, still haven't processed anything from the life that I just led. It's January of 2019, and we've just had our second daughter. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. What's your wife doing at this point? She's still, I'm so for the last 11 years, my wife has worked for the Flatwater Foundation. And the Flatwater Foundation raises money and awareness and pays 100% of the therapy costs for families and people associated with a cancer diagnosis. And you want to talk about like impactful, like in the city of Austin, what they've been able to do and what my wife's been able to do. It really is amazing. So she's been doing that this whole, the, the whole time. I love that. Well, you'll have to connect us because... With the big silence, we have a therapy for all program where we're trying to, you know, provide as much therapy for those who can't afford it um, in the mental health deserts and beyond, or you don't have health insurance that covers it. A lot of therapists don't take health insurance. Well, and that was what the, the founder of the foundation, my wife was the first hire of the foundation. So the founder, that was, he, his family was going through just awful, awful experiences with his father's diagnosis. And it kind of, the family was getting ripped apart and there was all of this weird animosity and they'd lost focus on what the real matter is and what that it should bring families together. And he had great insurance. He was, he was pretty well off. And all of a sudden he's like, who can afford this? Like I need this and we need this, but who can afford this? So he did it. The first ever thing he did, he paddled uh, 21 miles from dam to dam on Lake Austin, just right here. It's called damn that cancer. So he, he just did it with seven of his friends and got, Fox News anchor, who was a friend, just to do a blurb about it. Two weeks later, she's like, hey, we've got like 8000 It was like $8,000 in checks made out to Mark Garza. What do you want me to do with them? He's like, what? Three months later, he's got the Flatwater Foundation and damn that cancer, that 21-mile paddle. Now, I think last year, it's my wife's event, and they raised almost $1.3 million just in that one, in the one-day paddle. And it just is really, really amazing, the stuff that they've been able to do and the partnerships. And so... All that's going on in the background. My house is a house of mental wellness. So ironic. <laughs> you know? And so you're figuring out your next step in life, your next purpose. How do you get there? What do you go through? What are the emotions? Are you going to therapy? Like, is anyone from the, I don't know, Olympic side, your old coaches reaching out, checking on your mental health, any kind of resources there? Or you're just figuring it out on your own i'm avoiding it 
and and no nobody's like reaching out and no one's like hey how are you really doing like how is it how's it really going what's life like what are you thinking what are you scared of there wasn't any of that and there isn't and this i i don't want it to sound like there's there's nothing out there there's a big part of i would say just american culture in general and maybe it does cross borders but no one wants to admit that they're struggling so even if an email did float through my inbox that's like from the u.s olympic committee or the usatf i didn't know that anything existed beforehand and then maybe something floated through i damn sure wasn't clicking on that you know but to be honest there i don't recall a single thing there there isn't like any support or like i think it should be mandatory like you should have a mandatory like exit protocol with a licensed therapist to help you. It'd be so easy to get a network of therapists that want to work with these elite athletes to help them transition. But and, and I was just not dealing with it. I wasn't grieving it. I wasn't talking about it. I wasn't. I wasn't doing anything. I was going out and trying to find that next thing that I was gonna be really good at. Like let's go. Let's let's hit it. Let's let's. I, I mean, I got into like chemical distribution, commercial real estate, real estate development, private equity. Like I could talk my way out in, in and out of any room, any, any board meeting. I could do all this stuff and it was not doing anything. Like I was like, because I know what it felt like to be on. I know that feeling. I know that, that high and that rush of, of waking up every day and when my feet hit the ground, I cannot wait to go to work cannot wait and then every day coming home and having my cup filled no matter how hard the day was it was like that feeling of of fulfillment you know and joy and happiness and all that stuff and it just wasn't there it wasn't there in anything and i wasn't admitting to myself that it wasn't there i was like no 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 we're doing i'm doing it like we're i'm gonna be successful at this like i'll do this and like uh even if that little quiet voice was saying no hey trey trey slow down Slow down, slow down. I was just powering through it. I don't know. I, I don't know how or why that happened, but I wasn't working on it. You yeah. know, I wasn't talking to anybody about it. And so what was that moment where you were like, I need to talk about it. I need to figure this out. I need to stop being silent about how I'm feeling. Like, what was your transition if it has occurred or if you're still in it or have you moved through it? When you when I look back on it, there's little blips of and I'm, I was about to say highlights, but little low lights that are that really do stand out that were like, like, how did you not seek help after this? I had had a couple of I would call them like episodes of like anxiety or, or panic. They just felt the physical manifestation of what frustration feels like, like you can be mentally frustrated at something, but like the physical manifestation of frustration where like my Fists are clenched, and I am in this unbelievably contracted, like, and all I can do is, like, grip my teeth, and I'm not screaming, but I'm, like, like, passing a kidney stone without that pain, you know? Like, just this torturous thing that I'm not in control over at all. Like, this isn't me doing it. Like, someone's got control over the, the buttons and the switches, and I'm in my daughter's room behind our little nighttime recliner. Uh, rocker and I'm just curled up in a ball contracting and my wife runs in and she's crying she doesn't know what's going on I don't know what's going on 
that should have been the first sign. That should have been it, right? Year later, it it had happened like once or twice again. And I'm still at this time just taking one more step down kind of into the pool. Like each each week, each month, I'm just slowly walking and the water's getting higher. Water's getting higher for me just personally. Um, I'm not finding the great success in business that I thought I could find. It's getting higher as a father. I've got two young kids. I don't know what I'm doing. And I think it's a unique position and it's not, it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's just different for a father of a baby. Babies don't latch on to fathers. We get skin to skin, but it's the mom is the mom. There's a lot of positive feedback in that relationship. And I was, the water is getting higher there because I'm, I'm trying my best with two little girls that can't talk yet. I'm a new dad. I grew up without a father. I don't know how this is supposed to work. And I'm, I have no one to talk to about it because I had a, a strained relationship with my father and my stepfather had passed away in 2013 of leukemia. And I was just alone and was too ashamed to be feeling the way I was feeling to talk to anybody. Right. Cause you're the man of the house and I'm a world champion. It, Catholic. Yeah. yeah more champion. than that. And the man, and yeah, but you're, my, I, the relationship I have with my wife is so beautiful. I don't know that there's any perfect way to, to have to, you know, have a household, but we're 50, 50, like we're not, there's no, like, I'm the man. This is how we're going to do things. This is, I mean, if anything, I'm just like, it's like a 49, 51, like mom's got the final say here, like probably 10 out of 10. And it's a really good balance. And we're both from the same cut from the same cloth of like, we want to get it right. We, and I, I struggle with perfectionism, but it was more of that pride of, I don't do this. I'm better than this. Like I've never had to deal with anything like this because I'd been on, on this path that I knew I was supposed to be on. So I hadn't really had any hard mental struggle before. And so then you recognize it and you see that maybe you what what was the step where you're like, I need to talk to someone, I need to get help, or I need to figure out those tools to help my mental health? Like, What was the next stage? Like, did you hit a rock bottom? I began to journal, thought that would help. I did a little bit of like energy, like kinetic talk therapy, gave me some more tools to start to try to, again, it was still more like I was going to do this myself. I was going to do this and I was going to do it in the dark. And it was, I was going to come out and going to be all good one day. Got a new job, like a real, like a, not to say a real job, but I was no longer an entrepreneur. I was going to go work for a company. Awesome people, awesome founder, awesome job. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And like three months in, I found myself like totally incapable of answering phone calls sliding again steps down into the pool of not even knowing who's driving the car like not i don't like that same contracted feeling where i'm not i'm not pulling the, the switches or doing anything like that i didn't know who was in charge i and i couldn't get out of it and talk about it like a strained marriage at this point we have three children 
three under four and I don't care how great your kids are. That's, it's just a lot. Our grandparents are all on opposite sides of the country. It's just us pandemic. It's just us. We didn't, you know, we didn't pick up and go drive places or go anywhere. It was like, let's use this opportunity to be closer, you know? And it's all just stacking up and piling up. And I'm just, again, it's just another step down into the pool and the founder of the company that I was working for has his own story of a lot of what I was going through. And if he wasn't there, I don't know what I'd be doing. I don't even know if I'd, I'd be here, but based heart to heart. And he said, listen, this job's here when you come back, but you need to stop everything that you're doing because it's never going to get better unless you to focus on this completely and, and stop doing a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. You need to find somebody, you need to work through this and, I promise you jobs here when you get back. We love you. We want you to have we want to have you back. But you got to you got to be alive to come back. And got connected with a few people here in Austin um that are in uh with uh maps and very connected in that whole environment, and that whole space and all the research and all that stuff and just had a really several powerful sessions with them. One of the sessions with medicine, so like three or four sessions leading up MDMA assisted psilocybin and integration sessions afterwards that were just as powerful. And that was the beginning of the end of my self suffering and my silence and my despair, true, true despair. It's so interesting. I feel like almost every podcast that I have, everyone's done that type of treatment then like everyone i swear i mean i i have not i always tell myself i did enough ketamine and mdma and mushrooms as a teenager like i'm good <laughs> but i know it's a totally different experience but. it was interesting so i'd never done drugs never done yeah. anything like that and so i had real i call it like reverence for what it was like it it's, is medicine like it's not recreational to me and it was this powerful tool and i'd always leading up to these the, this moment I had had people say like, hey, maybe you should get on like, like SSRIs or maybe you've got yeah. like a like serotonin imbalance or something like that where I just couldn't pull myself out, you know? And I just stood pretty firm on I'm not going to take a pharmaceutical drug, not going to do it. And then when this was offered, like, hey, there's actually therapy around this. I'm like, well, that's a, I mean, God made that. That's a plant. We have grown as civilizations and, and evolved with this thing. And it serves a purpose in a lot of different cultures as well. I don't have anything to lose. Yeah. Like I got nothing to lose. So it was, I'm, I, I'm not going to just advocate that everybody needs it. There's some people that do and some people that don't. But it's an avenue that everyone should absolutely explore just because of how it, it let me see and recognize in this really safe clinical setting all of the emotions that I was avoiding all of the grief and sadness and fear and anger and all the stuff that I was running away from, I got to, I got to sit with it and it's, and it was scary. I had my therapist there with me, guiding me through, holding my hand, talking me through everything that was happening. And on the other side of all of that, like terrifying, difficult work was this warm, fuzzy love that you just hard hard to describe and then 
that feeling got to go back and meet with all of this other horrible, terrifying stuff. And I got to begin in those in that medicine session processing and dealing and doing all that stuff and started integrating all the things that I had learned in the session and started working through what this meant and how this, what this is and how this is and connecting the dots for, I started having childhood memories again. I told people all the time, like, I don't really remember much from my childhood. Like, I don't remember. You just buried it all, but now they came back and you're okay and with them. Yeah. And like unintentionally buried. It wasn't like I meant to force it down. It's like, oh yeah, that happened. Oh yeah. That is, oh wow. Okay. And it just started to, I just got my feet on the, on the ground, you know, and started to be able to try to be a little more forgiving to myself and, and got the courage to go see a counselor regularly every week. You still going? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. For anyone listening to, we have resources on the big silence.com, but yeah, therapy and therapy for men too is like a big deal for men. to. I, I think it's a beautiful thing to talk to someone and, you know, Bobby and I, I mean, I've been in therapy for years. I go in and out or different therapists, different types. And when I feel like I need, you know, someone to talk to and we've been in couples therapy, which is great. I mean, we're not relationships are not easy with ourselves and with our partner. Um, therapy is great. It really is. And the hardest thing in the world is to go the first one. Yeah. It is so the- uncomfortable. Like you don't want to do. Even just what you just said, the hardest thing in the world is going to be for some dude to just click the link and send it out. That's the worst and hardest part. Everything else is downhill. Everything else is like this this relief of, man, I'm glad I did that. Man, I'm really glad I did that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. You have to show up and you have to be honest with yourself and your therapist and like can't hide anything. But then once you leave that room, you're like, that wasn't so bad. Yeah, and it's that's good. And the only real, yeah, I, I just speaking to like, for me, why I was hesitant. I think it's not uncommon. It's just being scared, scared of what you'll find, scared of what you're gonna have to do. You're gonna have to deal with it. In the same way that like, before I did my first decathlon, it was scary because so I was like, man, if training's this hard, like this is gonna be really scary. Hardest one was the first one. Everything else was fun. Yeah. So what are your your practices now, mental health? Like, do you start your day a certain way to make sure you're mentally prepared for the day? Like, how do you stay positive and, or I mean, the best that you can be for that day? I'm in a really good groove right now. And I haven't sat down and said, okay, what's the groove? Why am I in this good groove? But journaling, I've journaled throughout, even if it's a paragraph, even if it's just like a sentence, like, Hey, today was a really good day. I just don't have time to talk, click, sent, done, that kind of thing. Um, I have it on my phone so I can do it whenever, wherever. And as my kids have kind of gotten older, I've kind of, I kind of turn into them like, Hey, what do you want to do? And and they're way more fun. We're, We're six, four and two now. We're not like newborn two and four, but consistently talking to somebody consistently being open and honest and a couple months ago we started called hearty gratefulness sessions where three nights a week tv's off everything's off and me and my wife are just sitting in bed and we just share things that we're grateful about each other that openness i think that's another thing that's helped me too right now is just being open and talking like after those sessions and the work from last summer i got 
much, much closer to a couple of my really good friends. They're my best friends. And now they're my like deep, deep best friends because we got to, I got to be open with them and connect on a level that we had kind of before and we knew each other. We've known each other almost 20 years now, but this was a different thing. This was like opening myself up and, and exposing this hurt and exposing this thing I didn't know how to do really opened myself up to receive love and compassion and grace. And in turn, those people then get to confide in me. And I feel like this unbelievable familial community connectedness, yeah. being able to offer that up. And you have a men's group here in Austin. I yes. think Austin is so good with like all these men's groups. You got to get Bobby to join. He doesn't have a men's group. We'll, we'll work on We'll work on. <laughs> he like never listens to the podcast, so he won't hear this. But Bob, uh, Bobby, if you've made it this far, <laughs> hit me up. <laughs> but no, I think that's great in that men coming together and talking and being vulnerable and free. Um, it's really good. I don't. I know here in Austin, there's a ton of the community like that. Um, I don't know in other parts of the world if there's a way to find. I've had. I've even had friends female friends reach out and be like, do you know any women's groups? Like, it's... I think, yeah, they exist with like, they're really like finite and definition, like new moms groups and yeah. like the walkers and like that kind of stuff. But I know like, I mean, nationally, I, I grew up in the deep South. There, every church ever has like a men's, a men's group. And there's like several that go around to it. And it's like really centered in Bible study and centered around that. But it more or less it's fellowship and it's the ability to be open and honest about what's going on in your life with other men. Yeah. I've been invited. I don't have kids, but I've been invited to the Austin Pomeranian club. There is one. I'm surprised you're not, you should run for president next year. Like join it. You'll be president within a year. <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure at five I'm top Pomeranian mom. <laughs> So, okay, so now, Trey, what is your journey like now with work and what you're doing? I mean, obviously, I know you are at collective training, leading, um, even new young athletes. Like, talk about that, like where you're at now. Yeah, I was coming out of doing all that integration, all the work, and had just kind of realized, you know, I don't, I don't really want to go back to that job. I know I don't think it's good for me mentally personally, it was just the right job at the wrong time. And I was kind of transitioning out of and kind of disconnecting from that. And I went to a, a Texas football game and rode up in an elevator with Devin Lowe, one of the founders of Collective. And we just hit it off, hit it off and talked nearly the whole game and ended up in his office two days later. Again, the 15 minute meeting turned into 90 minutes. And then Saw Jeremy, talked to Jeremy for at the end of that week for another like close to an hour. And they were like, hey, you know, we got, you know, Mo Wells. He's a track and field guy, one of the best coaches in the world. He's here. We got him at Collective. His whole group comes here. He's got the, a big pre-draft coming up with a bunch of guys. Talk to him. Maybe you could figure something out. Sat down with Mo. Uh, a couple of weeks later and one minute into that conversation, I was like, okay, if this guy will have me, I'm in. This is it. This feels great. Just great energy. I'm an expert in few things, but like running fast is one of those things. I wasn't the fastest guy, but I ran track and field professionally for a long time. So I this season, um, 
from basically Christmas until tomorrow night is the NFL draft. I've been helping these young men get ready for like kind of the biggest stage of their life. We help them get ready for the uh, NFL Combine, helping them run a, I mean, the NFL Combine is just the decathlon for football players. So I was really well suited. If you want to talk about like being on purpose, I know what it feels like. That felt like it. It really did. Um, I'm still learning a lot and we've got our NFL offseason group going right now. And now I'm, I'm starting to kind of spread out into, okay, what are the things that I know in this space? What are the things that I can provide as a service to, to members, to the general population? Because again, I've ran from it and I've held it all in. And now I'm in this kind of expansive, open part of my life where I want to put this out into the world. Got a, a bunch of knowledge and a bunch of experience and a bunch of really interesting things that I think can help people that, again, I think my kind of hashtag is unsexy. Like it's not, we're not, gonna, we're not doing power cleans. We're not jumping on boxes. We're not doing this, the Instagram worthy stuff. We're doing little stuff. And that little stuff just builds the foundation for any athletic endeavor you ever want to do. And that's kind of where I find myself right now, getting up early, getting my kids to school, commuting into work, and coming home every day with my cup filled. And it's something that, yeah, six years ago, I said I would never do and ran from and didn't want any part of. And now it just, it feels like a time machine. It feels like I'm going back in time and it's what I was supposed to be doing all along. Yeah, but you're actually, I can imagine you being the best trainer, coach, mentally and physically for these young athletes that are going through the combine or, you know, the future of the NFL and understanding, you know, I, integrating the mindfulness and explaining like this is a journey. They're just at the beginning of their journey, but they have you there to lead them and hopefully be their mentor through it all. I, I hope so. I actually, I got to give my what you can control, what you can't control speech uh, for one of our like mental like mental prep stuff before the combine. I was like, all right, gentlemen, we're going to make some lists, you know, lists of things you can and can't control kind of stuff. So I, I got to hopefully impart knowledge. At least I got to talk to them for a little bit. We had a couple of those sessions. And yeah, on the side, I've been able to be there for those guys when they're struggling with training, when they're going through something, when you want to talk about anxiety, like all their lives are about to change this weekend, you know, and what that means if it doesn't go the way that you plan and what that means if it if it goes better than you planned and how to plan for the future mentally and, and physically and yeah i never knew or thought i would have anything to offer you know it was in my past and i'm not doing that anymore um but it just it yeah it feels really really good i hope to to keep coming back every year and getting to do this with these guys yeah i've walked through that gym collective north when all the guys are there, and the energy is like it's at eleven. Yeah, and you it's can see awesome. like Bijan's face. He's like smile. He's like, ah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, it really is good. We have to kind of all right. We're not competing right now. We're not competing. But then there's some days where we're like, all right, uh, you guys get together. You get together. You get together. We're racing. Let's go. And you just yeah. There's there's nothing quite like those juices and that just bass drum thumping, weight clanging thing. It just is that that environment. That's what I grew up with. That's what I spent over half my life doing and never realized how much I would miss it. 
Well, you're still a part of it. Heck yeah. All right, Trey Hardy. I think you got some guys at Collective waiting for you in about a half hour. Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you for coming on. And if anyone wants to find you, we'll put it all in the show notes. I'm at Trey Hardy on everything. Twitter and Instagram. And I don't really go on Facebook, but it's linked to Instagram. So you'll, you'll see stuff up there. Yeah, just hit my DMs, hit me up if you ever need to talk. That's kind of the main thing is that I think if I had seen somebody that was going through something that I had gone through, I would have wanted to reach out. And nothing, yeah, there's no exposure in a private message. You know, like it's very, very, very confidential. And it, it just would have helped a lot for me to be able to talk to somebody about this. Yeah. I love that you're offering that up too. And I respond to all my DMs too. And it, it's one DM that you respond to can save a life. And I know that from personal experience, but um, just reaching out. The smallest things can mean so, so much, so much. And it's not worth not doing it. It's not, it's not worth not trying. It's not worth putting some expectation on somebody else. Like, no, he's, they're busy. I don't want to bother them. Like, who am I to ask? Go for it. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you. Thank you for the, the big silence and all the stuff that you're doing. And we got to connect big silence and flat water. Yeah. Austin's ripe for all this stuff. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. The big silence. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. The big silence. The big side.